Krishna Padaya, Krishna Prastaya Bhutale, Srimati Bhaktivedanta Swami Nityanamane, Namaste Sarasvati Deve, Goravani Pacharane, Nirvasesis and Nirvati Paskatya Desatarane, Vandeham Shri Guru, Shri Uta, Parakamalam, Shri Guru, and Vaishnavamscha, Shri Rupam, Sagrajatam, Sahagana, Raganatam, Vitam, Sam Sajivam, Sadvoitam, Sadvadutam, Padijana, Sahita, Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Shri Radha, Krishna Padam, Sahagana, Lalita, Shri Vishakam, Vitamscha, Banchakapa, Jubishcha, keep us in the Bibhutap, Titanam, Pavanavio, Vaishnavavanamo, Namaha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya so it's April 27, 2022, from Hilo, Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 31, Narada Instructs the Prachetas, Text 1. Maitreya Uvacha. I'm sorry, are we recording, Ramananda? Oh, oh my God. Thank you, Jai Jagadish. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Mother Ramana. No problem. We ready? Yeah. The recording has started. Maitreya Uvacha. Maitreya Uvacha. Tata Utpana Vigyana. Asvaroksha Jabashitam. Smaranta Atma Jaybaryam. This Vidya Prarajan Grihat. Please chant. Maitreya Uvacha. Maitreya said. Tataha. Thereafter. Utpana developed Vijnanaha possessing perfect knowledge Ashu very soon Adhokshaja by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. By the Supreme Personality of Godhead. What was enunciated? Smarantaha. Remembering. Atmajay. Unto their son, Baryam, their wife, Visrijja, after giving, Pravarjan, left. 
Grihat. From home. Translation by Srila Prabhupada. The great sage Maitreya continued. After that, the Prachetas lived at home for thousands of years and developed perfect knowledge in spiritual consciousness. At last, they remembered the blessings of the Supreme Personality of Godhead and left home, putting their wife in the charge of a perfect son. Srila Prabhupada's purport. After the the Prachetas had finished their penances, they were blessed by the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The Lord blessed them by telling them that after finishing their family life, they would return home back to Godhead in due course of time. After finishing their family life, which lasted thousands of years according to the calculations of the demigods, the Prachetas decided to leave home, putting their wife in the charge of a son named Daksha. This is the process of Vedic civilization. In the beginning of life as a brahmachari, one has to undergo severe penances and austerities in order to be educated in spiritual values. The brahmachari or student is never allowed to mingle with women and learn from the beginning of life about sex enjoyment. The basic flaw in modern civilization is that boys and girls are given freedom during school and college to enjoy sex life. Most of the children are varna sankara, meaning born of undesirable fathers and mothers. Consequently, the whole world is in chaos. Actually, human civilization should be based on the Vedic principles. This means that in the beginning of life, boys and girls should undergo penances and austerities. When they are grown, they should get married, live for some time at home, and beget children. When the children are grown up, the man should leave home and search for Krishna consciousness. In this way, one can make one's life perfect by going home to the kingdom of God. Unless one practices penances and austerities in his student life, he cannot understand the existence of God. Without realizing Krishna, one cannot make his life perfect. The conclusion is that when the children are grown, the wife should be put in the children's charge. The husband may then leave home to develop Krishna consciousness. Everything depends on the development of mature knowledge. King Prachinibarishat, the father of the Prachetas, left home before the arrival of his sons, who were engaged in austerity within the water. As soon as the time is ripe, or as soon as one has developed perfect Krishna consciousness, he should leave home, even though all his duties may not be fulfilled. Prachini Barishat was waiting for the arrival of his sons, but following the instructions of Narada, as soon as his intelligence was properly developed, he simply left instructions for his ministers to impart to his sons. Thus, without waiting for their arrival, he left home. Giving up a comfortable home life is absolutely necessary for human beings and is advised by Prahlad Maharaj. Hitvatma patam guraham andakupam. To finish the materialistic way of life, one should leave his so-called comfortable home life, which is simply a means for killing the soul, atma patam. The home is considered to be a dark well covered by grass, and if one falls within this well, he simply dies without anyone's caring. One should therefore not be too much attached to family life, for it will spoil one's development of Krishna consciousness. Maitreya Uvacha Tata Utpana Vigyana Ashvadhoksha Jabashitam Smaranta Atmajebaryam Visridya Pravrajam Grihat. The great sage Maitreya continued after that. The Prachetas lived at home for thousands of years and developed perfect knowledge in spiritual consciousness. At last they remembered the blessings of the Supreme Personality of Godhead 
and left home, putting their wife in charge of a perfect son. So here we see the value of what we're attached to and having a society where one can develop the proper attachments. There was, I would say, practically like a movement or philosophy that was very popular not that long ago. I think it still has some adherence, but it no longer retains the same level of popularity, that one will get whatever one is attached to. And so people would cultivate particular attachments, figuring that that way they would get what they want. Now, it's not quite as simple as that, uh, but at the same time it is quite as simple as that, that we achieve whatever we're most attached to, whatever we want. That Krishna has been fulfilling everyone's desires from the beginning of time. Uh, as we surrender to Krishna, he rewards us accordingly. Now, why I say it's not so simple as that, is that simply having an attachment on the emotional or mental level is not sufficient. One also has to do actions. I mean, such is obvious. <laughs> like if somebody says, I really want to become a medical doctor, you have to study to become a medical doctor. You can't just sit on your couch eating chips and saying, I want to become a medical doctor, I want to become a medical doctor. You have to qualify yourself and go to medical school. And it's true even for very small things. You know, I want to learn how to crochet. You know, you've got to study how to crochet. You can't just, again, be sitting on your couch saying, I want to learn how to crochet. Therefore, shilanam, in the definition of pure bhakti, uttam bhakti, this word shilanam, actions, means both one's mentality and one's behavior. So this science is that we get whatever we're attached to as exemplified and demonstrated by our behavior. And we can say that without the behavioral aspect, the attachment really isn't very strong. I'm sure all of us have something that we would like to be able to do, but we don't have a strong enough attachment to actually take any behavioral steps in that direction. Like many, many years ago, when I was a Gurukul teacher, and Prabhupada said that without Sanskrit, it's not a Gurukula. So we had different Sanskrit teachers. We had Gopi Pranadana Prabhu, who was a teacher. And then when he left, uh, we had no Sanskrit teacher. And so finally I decided, well, I guess I need to learn Sanskrit. And I was focused on the idea that I would learn conversational Sanskrit. So I actually did put in some effort. I, I bought a course that I studied. Then I went to an immersion camp and signed up for the further course. And I, I did that probably for a couple of years. And then I got to a point where it became difficult it became really difficult to continue. I needed other people to work with me. I couldn't find other people and so forth. And so I, I abandoned it. I never really got past a very elementary level of understanding. So that means my attachment, I had some attachment. I had enough attachment to take some steps. But I didn't have enough attachment to follow through and become really proficient. So this is, we all have this 
kind of situation or there are some things that I would like to do but I make no effort to do it whatsoever you know I just I don't move in that direction at all like I'd like to know how to play the harmonium but I've never spent as much as one minute of my life uh, trying to play the harmonium so that means my actual attachment is very small it, it's so small uh, that I haven't put even the slightest amount of effort into it so therefore uh, this concept that I just get what I want is it's true uh, but it's incomplete there has to be some behavior and we understand that the main goal of life prema pumartamahan is love I mean this is not a very difficult thing to understand by looking at uh, our behavior in this world that the greatest enjoyment comes from loving and being loved whether one is loving uh, an animal or whether one is loving another human being or whether one is loving nature or loving one's job or uh, this, this feeling of love this uh, would, creates rasa or pleasure or taste and Srila Prabhupada says that it is this rasa that is driving all of us on and on in all of our activities whether it's material activities spiritual activities whatever it is what's driving us forward is this this rasa right this uh, this desire to enjoy a particular taste through attachment hmm. so because we get whatever we want and because the highest thing that we can get is love then the next thing is what is the highest object of love and what is the highest form of love so the highest object of love is a perfect person uh, one devotee posted something on social media the other day that I don't know why I can't find a husband I've, I've been with two men but I had to give them up because they weren't impeccably honest and so I commented that to be impeccably anything in this world is not achievable it's not possible impeccable means perfect without flawless and I said there is no such thing as an impeccably honest <laughs> you're just not going to find that uh, so we're, we're looking in this world, but the supreme object of love is God. God is impeccably everything. Of course, Krishna uh, lies and steals as part of his play. That's something else. But Krishna is paramsattva. He's the supreme truth. He is truth. He personifies truth. He is perfect in every way. He has no flaws. Uh, even things that apparently are flaws like he engages in violence. Puritranaya sadhanam vinashaya tadushkritam. He destroys the atheists through violence. Uh, but that is a very wonderful thing. We celebrate, even in human society, the people who destroy the bad guys <laughs> are what to speak of, of God. So he's flawless. He's the supreme object of love. He's perfect in every way. He knows us perfectly. He's completely compatible with each of us, even though we're all different and he's able to reciprocate with us exactly the way that we desire. So he is the supreme object of love, and the supreme type of love is a love on our part that is selfless, selfless, where we are loving simply to love. We are loving, loving for the joy and the flow of and the taste of loving, trying to please our beloved Lord. Uh, not so he'll give us something, but just so we'll please him. And so therefore, understanding that this is the topmost goal of life, and if we are attached to that topmost goal of life, we will get it. We need to structure our life in such a way that we will be nourishing and developing that attachment. 
rather than an attachment to something else. So because the topmost goal in the world is to love and be loved, uh, generally we want to love and be loved by other uh, flawed souls in this world. And that is because we, we're not able to see the perfect person. We're not able to touch and to smell and to taste and to talk to the perfect person. And because we have such a desire to love and be loved, we then take that urge to experience rasa through loving and being loved and we apply it to other flawed beings like ourselves. And generally this is done, as Prabhupada would say, society, friendship and love, and particularly this is done with family. I mean, we all do this with friends, but we particularly do this with family. And why with family? I mean, it's there's a, a biological basis for that and a spiritual basis for that. The biological basis for that is that we are, by the arrangement of the Lord, he could have had it another way, but by the arrangement of the Lord, the way that human beings uh, get a body is through the, the reproductive act of a man and a woman. And we are very helpless at birth. We are very dependent upon our parents. And generally, if things are normal, which I suppose today hardly anybody's normal, but if things are normal, our parents love each other and they love us. And then we have uh, siblings also that we grow up with, and we have aunties and uncles and cousins and, and so forth. And there's a sense that these are mine. The word is swajana, that these are my people, that these are people who are like me, that they have something similar to me. We Our bodies share a genetic history, and we have a sense of being there for each other that I have their back and they have my back and I give to them without conditions and they give back to me without conditions. And we have a sense that uh, friends may come and go, but our family is there. They say blood is thicker than water. And we, we have this sense of family. So often in this world, that becomes our attachment. And then as we mature, uh, then we find a romantic partner and we develop our own branch of the family and, and so forth. And this is generally where we put our primary attachment. I mean, nowadays, families are so fractured and, and often, as we say, dysfunctional that our, our attachment to family becomes often a great sense of disappointment for us. But still, there's always that hope that we'll be reunited with estranged family members or that uh, family members who've uh, become troubled in some way that they'll rectify themselves and you know so forth and so on. We have this this kind of hope. So Vedic civilization tries to uh, work with us from where we are. When we want to go someplace, and I make this point often, but it bears repeating numerous times. When we want to go someplace, we have to start from our current location. There isn't an option. You know, if you're going to use a GPS, it has to know where you are. If ever you get directions to some place, you have to have your starting point, and one has to be honest about one's starting point. So the starting point for most humans who are conditioned souls is that we are attached. Primarily, this desire to love and be loved is centered around family. Uh, even those who never marry, it's centered around parents and, and siblings and to those who marry or get involved in some 
a romantic sexual relationship. It's centered around the spouse or the romantic partner, and then it's centered around the children that are produced from that and the connection and, and so forth. And it's, it's fascinating. I mean, we're saying like there's a biological basis for being attached to our parents. We're dependent upon our parents, strongly dependent for years, for our physical and emotional and mental survival. And so if we didn't have any attachment to our parents, uh, we would die. <laughs> and our parents are attached uh, to us as well, as Prabhupada says, uh, being captivated by the activities of their children. The parents take great care for their well-being. And, of course, the mother, it gets, under normal circumstances, gets very attached to the child, uh, carrying the child within her own body for so long, and then feeding the child from her own body. She really feels that the child is an extension of herself, and therefore, even in the animal kingdom, um, mothers will will risk their lives, particularly the mothers will risk their lives for their children. And, of course, the father also is feeling that this child is an extension of my own body and this child is my legacy and how I will continue in the world and, and, and so forth. And then in the as adults in the sexual act, so the sexual act releases uh, hormones like oxytocin, which uh, give us a feeling of affection and bonding and trust. They flood us with a, a feeling, just like if we see an enemy, we're flooded with cortisol and adrenaline that gives us a, a sense of danger and fear and anger. And uh, the sexual act gives us a feeling of, of trust. And everyone knows this. This fact is the reason why sexual relationships mean that a person's judgment is impaired. And therefore, in many parts of society, it's understood that once you have a sexual relationship with someone, you can no longer be objective about that person. This is one reason why in many, like in the military, sexual liaisons between people of different rank are not allowed, or it's considered a conflict of interest in, in many occupations or many situations if you're involved in a sexual relationship with someone you know, if a lawyer is trying to defend an accused criminal with whom they have a sexual relationship, that's considered a conflict of interest. Uh, and, and there are so many uh, examples like this. Uh, so why? <laughs> because a sexual relationship gives us some feeling of that I trust this person and I care about this person. It's a, it's a biochemical reaction. And why is that there? Why has Krishna arranged that? Because that way you stay with the person to raise the child. And the child, human children, have a long uh, growth period and they're very helpless. And anybody who has raised a child without a partner knows that it's extremely difficult. It's far better for the child to have more people involved in their upbringing rather than less. And so this concept of I, I like this person and I trust this person that comes from these biochemicals uh, is very helpful for sticking around and raising children nicely. Mm -hmm. And so there's a biological basis to that. Mm -hmm. And so therefore this family attachment, both for our birth family and for our marital family, is, is very strong. It's very strong psychologically because it's substituting for our relationship with God and it's very strong biologically so that, there's, so that society goes on and human beings get proper training, and human beings get proper protection, and, and so forth. So the Vedic system has actually two ways of relating 
family attachment to spiritual attachment. One is seeing family attachment as a progressive step upward toward spiritual attachment. And another is seeing family attachment as a progressive step downward away from spiritual attachment. So we're going to look at both of those and then we're going to look at the the relationship ultimately between yoga in general and bhakti yoga in particular. And these this is actually the ashram dharma, uh, to some extent varna dharma, but mostly what we're talking about here is ashram dharma. So how is family attachment as a progressive stage up towards attachment to love of God? Well, most people, if they're not attached to their family, engage in relationships of attachment and affection that are very degraded. So the vast majority of people being loyal to their mother and father, taking care of their siblings, then later taking care of their spouse, being faithful to their spouse, raising their children nicely, is far more civilized than just disrespecting your parents or having some series of sexual partners with whom you have no care and attachment and abandoning your children and so forth. And we see in 2022, I mean, Prabhupada writes in Bhagavad Gita that marriage is is now an imagination in human society. And we see in 2022 that the old concepts of marriage are, are practically an imagination in human society. I just... The, the concept that you married when you were young and you were, as Prabhupada's explaining in this purport, that before marriage you were celibate and not only were you celibate but you didn't even have uh, emotional uh, romantic relationships and that, you know, your only, your only, first and your only uh, relationship, of course there were, there were plural marriages, but those were marriages. And sexual relationships outside of marriage were extremely unusual. Certainly they happened. We read about prostitutes and Dwarka and so forth, but, but they were unusual. The norm was that people married young. They didn't have sexual experiences, either physical or emotional, before marriage. And all sexual relations were confined to marriage. And then people married lifelong, again, with some rare exceptions, but generally that was the case and the concept of honoring your elders and so forth. And what that meant is that people's minds were peaceful. Prabhupada says marriage is for making the mind peaceful. Today people's minds are so disturbed. I mean, there's an unbelievable lack of peace in a society where family attachment and family cohesiveness and, and sexual chastity is not a norm in society. I, it, the, and the relationship between problems in the family and psychological problems, crime, addiction, is well documented. And I cannot count how many people I've run into, even those practicing Krishna consciousness, where they have a major psychological and emotional disturbance in their life because their family situation is not settled. And often physical, it often affects them physically as well. 
marriage and family is a strong civilizing force for people. Again, there's so much sociological evidence that men are far more responsible when they're married than when they're single, and everybody knows this. Young single men are most likely to be criminals. They're, uh, you know, the criminal, well, criminals are most likely to be young single men. People who get into car accidents are most likely to be young sing- single men, and so forth and so on. You know, a wife civilizes the man. And the man civilizes the woman. The husband civilizes the woman. Prabhupada talks about how, you know, unprotected women are, are going to be exploited by so many men. And unprotected men are going to cause havoc in society. And this is, again, everybody knows this. This isn't some kind of a secret. You know, nowadays it's illegal, but Prabhupada said when he was a young man, that an employer wouldn't wouldn't hire an unmarried man. Considered him a risk. Whereas a married man is going to be responsible. There's also lots of evidence that having children civilizes people. And again, this is just common sense. How many people are going to stay up all night drinking and partying when they have young babies at home? I mean, it just... It's something that we see in our everyday life. As soon as you have children then you think about how to set a good example and how to take care of them, how to provide responsibly. And then you think about how to give to your community and how to build a community. And you want to raise your children in moral life, so you're much more likely to be interested in morals and ethics and religion. Again, this is a statistical fact. It's interesting that men who have daughters are far more likely to be charitable than men who only have sons or men who don't have children or men who aren't married and things like this. So there is a a civilizing dharmic function of family. And families are people who have families are far more likely to engage in religious functions, in religious rituals, and in worship than are people whose families are dysfunctional. Again, this is just sociological statistics. And it's true across every culture of the world. There is no doubt at all whatsoever that the crime rate would go down, drug and alcohol use would go down, accidents would go down if people married young, stayed with their family their whole life, and if there was respect and honor and loyalty and care within families. And I've asked so many audiences all over the world, if you woke up tomorrow and the only thing that was different in the world was that Uh, family members were all loving to each other. Husbands and wives were loving to each other. If that was the only thing that changed, nothing else, that family members were loving and kind to each other around the whole world, how big of a change would that be? And everybody goes, wow, that would be huge. So therefore, the ashram dharma is that pretty much everybody gets married. As soon as you reach the proper age of maturity, you get married. And this was the responsibility of the parents. You know, we've developed a kind of strange culture often within our present Gaudiya Vaishnav Sanghas of encouraging people not to marry. And I'm regularly, regularly counseling devotees, especially men, who have gotten into their mid-30s or even mid-40s and have artificially 
kept themselves from getting married, and they're usually doing some uh, improper activities in some way or another, and they're not very happy, and then when they do get married, they have a bad attitude about marriage, and they have a bad attitude about their wife, that it's a spiritual fall down, and so forth, and you know, it, it's a problem. But in the Vedic system, grahasta is a step up from brahmachari, not a step down. It's a step up. And it's a very important civilizing force. And also we see uh, in the Krishna consciousness movement, so many married couples, as Prabhupada say, that they serve with double strength. Well, we just see this practically, that the husband helps the wife in bhakti, the wife helps the husband in bhakti, the children help the parents, the parents help the children, so, so many examples of this. We can all think of at least hundreds of examples of highly functional and loving families where their engagement in bhakti is increased by their family association. I mean, I'm sure we could, we could all easily name 10 or 20 such families right off the top of our head. All right, but there is another way in which family attachment is a progressive road down from spiritual attachment, and that is if we substitute our family attachment for attachment to God. And that's such an easy thing to do. It's so easy. Our family is right there. <laughs> that We can see them, we can touch them, we can talk to them, we can interact with them, we can do the six loving exchanges with them, we feel that we're connected with them physiologically, biologically. It's so easy to have them substitute for our attachment to Krishna, often in the name of Krishna consciousness. You know, well, we're doing things together, and we're chanting Hare Krishna together, and we're doing programs together, and therefore let my main attachment be for them, separate from my attachment to Krishna. And the, the biological urge for us to have that kind of attachment to family, which is meant to protect us from sinful life and to protect society from chaos, uh, can, be, can overwhelm us. And we can be terrified of moving away from that biological urge. And, you know, the, the pious part of the world glorifies this family attachment at the time of death, even. You know, the ordinary people think it's wonderful if the man is lovingly thinking of his wife when he dies, and the wife is lovingly thinking of her husband, the parents are thinking of their children, and, you know, that this is the, the pinnacle of life. You know, dying, being surrounded by your loving family members, and, oh, I love you, my dear, I love you, my dear. And then, instead of having family life be helpful, it siphons away our attach, our inclination, our urge. I've, I've told many times how I was on a, on a dropper walk with uh, my, God, my late god sister Kalungana in London, and we met this one woman asking us for directions, and Kalungana said, well, we're going that way, you can walk with us. And as she was walking with us, Kalungana told her how we were chanting Hare Krishna and tried to get her to chant Hare Krishna. And the woman said, well, I pray to God when I'm in difficulty, so I'm not in difficulty right now, why should I pray? So this is the problem, that if you have a very pious society where people are happy in their family life, then their urge to look for another source of love is not so strong. Even though, if you're perfect in your family life, it's still not going to be satisfying. 
because you're not loving the perfect person in the perfect way. And therefore, even if it's ideal materially, it's going to be disappointing because we want to love the perfect person in the perfect way. Uh, that's what we want. That is what we're all looking for. We're all looking for selfless, unconditional love of the perfect person who selflessly and unconditionally loves us in return. However, if we have something inferior, I mean, and we find this, you know, <laughs> just like something is broken and you do a temporary fix with duct tape, and that temporary fix, that hideous duct tape temporary fix, is still there 15 years later. Because, well, it, it's functional. <laughs> so, you know, this happens. This happens where we, we settle. You know, this woman who wanted this impeccably honest husband, I was exhorting her, please settle. You know, you're not going to find a perfect husband. Settle. Right? But the problem is, of course, that when we settle in this world, we may cease looking for the ideal. We may say, well, this is all, as it, this is all it is. This is as good as it gets. You know, having imperfect love for an imperfect jiva who has imperfect love for me in return, or a set of jivas, well, it's not what I really want. It doesn't really satisfy me, but that's as good as it gets. So that's when family attachment becomes a problem. And therefore, in the ashram system, although grahastha life is a step up from brahmachari, vanaprastha is a further step up from grahastha. That there's a time to accept family life and there's a time to renounce family life. That both are equally beneficial, but at different times in life, at different stages in life. And renouncing family life, here Prabhupada talks about the man leaving home and the wife stays with the children, but Vanaprastha life can also be uh, the husband and wife uh, going together out of the family. There's many examples in the Bhagavatam, in fact, here in the fourth canto, in the story told to King Prachini Barishat as part of this narration, we have that uh, when Puranjana in his next life was Madarekshana married to King Malayadwaja, uh, they took Vanaprastha together. They were in the forest together. And we have, of course, many, many other examples. Uh, Gantari, who went with Dhritarashtra, actually Kunti went with Dhritarashtra as well. Uh, Archie, who went with Prithu, which is also in the fourth canto. So it is not always that the husband and wife separate. They can. Uh, the husband and wife separating at Vanaprastha is acceptable. The husband and wife staying together at Vanaprastha is acceptable. But they give up, just like in ordinary life. You retire, and retiring means you stop working at a job. You stop earning money. So they retire from their career, and they retire from sex, and they retire from being so emotionally involved in the family and family activities. And that's often a gradual thing. Uh, there may be a particular point at which a couple takes, the, takes to the Vanaprast order, uh, but it's still usually a gradual thing where they may, the husband and wife may travel for some time and then come back and visit the family and travel some time and come back and visit. And they may, you know, do some care of the grandchildren and then they may also... I know uh, uh, Shivaram Swami at Nuvrajadam, there's one devotee uh, where her son, the mother and son, became devotees. 
and then the son got married and he and his wife have two daughters and they were all living in the same house and at a certain point Shiva Ramar said to the mother he said it's not that your whole life should just be you know being a mother and a grandmother you should also spend time uh, in, in, in other service and I thought that this was you know very important some people have this idea I mean and one could get that conception from this to today's purport that it's only the men who, men who take up direct Krishna consciousness, but not also the woman. So whether the woman travels with the husband or whether the woman is at home with her children, either way, it is enjoined on each of them to really turn their attachment, that during one's household life, one should be helping one another to develop attachment for Krishna, not just for each other. And then it comes to the point where one is focusing on that as one's main business. So if we look at the relationship between yoga, any kind of yoga, whether it's karma yoga, gyan yoga, dhyan yoga, or bhakti yoga, but of course we're primarily interested in bhakti yoga, and ashram uh, dharma, we see that the main thing is developing bhakti yoga. Even if your ashram dharma is a mess, even if you don't really have any ashram dharma, you were never a proper brahmachari and you were married four times and, you know, whatever, and you're 70 years old and you're still living with your children and grandchildren and whatever, even if you're or you're living alone and whatever it may be. Bhakti yoga is, is not dependent on having a sane ashram situation. Bhakti is independent. Having a sane ashram situation is helpful for individuals and for society, but it is not necessary. It's not necessary. It's very, very, very helpful, but it is not necessary. Bhakti Yoga stands alone. For the majority of people, the majority of the time, having a sane ashram situation that progresses from brahmachari to grahastha to vanaprastha and for some people to sannyas is extremely helpful. Uh, just like Rupa Goswami, when he talks about the angas of bhakti in his list of the main do-nots, he says, do not be in anxiety. Now, being in this material world without having any anxieties is impossible. But one should not be focused on those anxieties. And one should try to mold one's life in such a way as far as possible where we do not accept unnecessary anxieties. So having a discombobulated uh, ashram system definitely is a source of anxiety for people. And to be properly situated in the proper ashram helps make one's mind peaceful. So it's something that we very much encourage, or we should very much encourage as something that makes it easier to perform bhakti. I mean, just like at a practical level, if you have an altar in your house, you set up a sacred space in your house with pictures of the Lord or deities, that's very helpful for the development of Krishna consciousness. Is it necessary? No. Or just like people will say, you know, you need to chant all your rounds by 7 in the morning and all at one time. Is that helpful? At least for some people, in some circumstances, it may be very helpful. Uh, for other people, it actually may be a disturbance. But that's not necessary. Prabhupada talked about when he was a grahasta, he chanted four rounds before breakfast, four before lunch, four before dinner, and four before bed. 
So different situations may be helpful for different people at different times, like getting married is helpful for most people at a certain time, and then renouncing marriage is helpful for most people at a certain time. Uh, however, bhakti does not depend on getting help from anything. In fact, if one thinks that bhakti get, depends on getting help from something, then it's no longer uttam bhakti. Jnana karma anavritam. So karma should not be covering bhakti. This is karma. Varna dharma and ashram dharma is karma. And one should not think that I require a certain kind of dharma in this world in order to fall in love with Krishna. One can fall in love with Krishna anywhere at any time. Any person can fall in love with Krishna. Any person can switch their attachment to Krishna. And that's the point. And each of us as individuals, we should take up a life as far as within our power, and not everything's within our power. But as far as within our power, we should take up a life which will increase our attachment to Krishna. That's what we should do. And that will change. How, what life will help increase our attachment to Krishna when we're 20 may be different from what helps increase our attachment when we are 30. All right, questions, comments, additions, subtractions? Oh, sorry, that was a Give me a minute here. Um, I'm going to change up kinds of buttons. Um, okay. I have a question. Um, by the way, it's great to have you back with us again. Nice to be back. Class. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, you were talking about the, the family, your, your family attachment sort of obscuring um, the becoming attached to Krishna. And that, you know, that's you know, pretty obvious, and we see that so much. I was thinking, what about if you're attached to a family member who is very, very Krishna conscious? And I, I'm thinking, because you brought up the example of Kalanjana in his next life. He became a woman, and, and, uh, and she, Kalanjana in his next life, to marry the great, great devotee, Malatvaja. So what happened at the, at the end of her husband's life, she was so extremely attached to him that she was uh, massaging his body, and, and finally he, he, he left his body, and she was just crying pitifully. And then she just she built the fire, she was ready to enter into a fire. But before she entered into the fire, the Lord came in the form of that Brahmin, and just, you know, completely enlightened her. Hey, don't you remember me? I'm, I'm your old, your dear old friend. So, so what about in a case like that where you're, let's say you're the Yes, well that's why I was saying, that's why the point I made at the end is that it's individual. First of all, family will help most people to come to God consciousness during the prime of life. So the vast majority of people, the vast majority of time will be helped in their development towards love of God somewhere between the ages of, you know, 20 and 50 approximately if they're involved in family. And this is true for children and teenagers as far as their birth family as well. So having a stable, loving family 
you know, when you're a child with your birth family and once you're mature with your own spouse and children is for most people, most of the time, favorable for their spiritual development, even if their family members are not all God-conscious. That's true for most people most of the time. It's actually favorable. It's a step up. But for most people, most of the time, you do reach a point when that kind of life becomes unfavorable. Now, you have some people where their family is, is all sadhus, you know, their husband or their wife, their children are all sadhus. But then it depends, like Kunti was saying, you know, I want to be I don't want to be attached to my family because they're family. So even if your family is all sadhus, one should take some care. Of course if your families are sadhus, you know, you may end up getting attached to Krishna even without really making much of a deliberate effort. Like, it's so funny, the story of, of Sobari Muni, how, you know, he offends Garuda, and so he gets attached to getting married, so much so he uses his yogic power to look like a young man again, and 50 sisters fall in love with him. You imagine, you know, it's enough trouble having one spouse, and you have to have 50 of them. And then he had a ton of kids by the women. I think he had, like, 100 kids from each wife, something like that, so, you know. He was 10. 10? Yeah, I think it was 10. It was 10. 10, okay. So even, even so, 500 kids? 500, that's a lot of kids, you know? Yeah. 500 kids. And yeah. to, make, to make 50 women happy, you know, even if you're a yogi, it's, it's, that's not such an easy thing. And then at a certain, and he was living, it said that Sobri Muni's um, household life was so opulent that even the demigods were praising it. And then at a certain point, he's like, wow, you know, I, I really need to focus on my spirituality. And he took Vanaprast, and all 50 women followed him into the forest. They didn't, like here with the Prachet does, his wife Marisha stays with Daksha, with Sobri Muni, his, his, his 50 wives followed him. And he went back to Godhead, and they went back to Godhead because they followed him. So it's kind of interesting, and I'm sure he benefited those 500 kids also. It's interesting that although Sobri Muni ostensibly fell down, he actually ended up taking a whole lot of people back to Godhead with him. So th this, is, uh, this can happen. If your family members are great devotees, then even if your attachment to them is primarily material, that attachment to them can also bring you to love of God. You know, and, and this is something that Srila Prabhupada uh, told my father. My father said, I'm coming to the temple to see my daughter and son-in-law, not to see Krishna. And Prabhupada said, yes, they are loving Krishna. Chanting and dancing are symptoms of loving Krishna. So they are loving Krishna and you are loving them, and two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So that's a possibility, but that's, that's not ordinary. It, it's not... It's not common among the seven billion people of the world that your family member is such a great devotee that just by becoming attached to your family member, uh, you also attain to love of God. It happens. It definitely happens, but that's that's definitely more unusual. Okay, thank you. If it happens, boy, are you lucky. But someone actually had their hand up. 
She can't see it. She's on the phone. I'm just on the phone. Um, I have a question. Um, I'm sure this has been brought up before. Uh, now, what if uh, a devotee, a male devotee, um, his, he has a wife who's very Krishna conscious, an ISKCON devotee, um, and there's no hindrance or ha uh, hampering in his devotional service. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even have to work, that she's uh, holding down the job. So uh, is it really necessary for him to take sannyas? No, not I mean, definitely he can not. Still preach? Definitely not. I mean, that's why ultimately this has to be looked at individually. You know, we can make a general statement that for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of time, they should get married when they're young. And for the vast majority of people, the vast majority of time, they should become renounced in middle age. We, we can say, for the vast majority, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of the time, having an intact, loving family is favorable to spiritual life. But look at Druva and Narada. Druva and, and Narada used a, a, a family tragedy in Narada's case and family dysfunction in Druva's case as an impetus for spiritual life. So, there's individuality. And to... We're, we're individuals. We're people. We're individual people. And we can say, based on Shastra and based on sociological statistics, that certain situations are, in general, best for people. But you can't say that for a particular individual. But they are best for most people most of the time. So as a, as a default, you can say, probably... If I'm 24 years old, I should be married. And if you're 60, you could say, probably, I should be in the renounced order. That's probably true. You've got like a 90% chance that that's true. But for individuals, it may not be true. And we have to be extremely careful about thinking that general truths are absolute truths. They're not. They're, they're just not. General truths are only general truths. They're not absolute. It's absolutely true that we should love God. But what situation is going to be favorable for love of God? It's going to be different for me than for you. And that's going to be true for, for details. You know, what kind of food is going to be healthy for me is going to be different. What kind of food is going to be healthy for you? And it's going to be true for big things. Right. But that doesn't mean we get so individualized that we just say that these general truths are no longer general truths. They are. They apply to most people most of the time. And it's, it's probably wise to start off with the default value that I'm probably not an exception. That I'm probably in the general category and work from that instead of starting off with the default value that I'm probably an exception. Does that make sense? Yeah, 